You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harold. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I am Jim Harold, and I'm so glad to be with you once again. And I couldn't be more excited than to have Richard Hatch on the line. Of course, you know him from the original Battlestar Galactica series. Plus, he's been on many, many other programs. He is an actor, director, writer, teacher, and motivational speaker. So he has certainly not stood still uh, since that original series and is very active to this day. Richard Hatch, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. It is absolutely great to be with you as well. Now, uh, I want to start back because people always think of acting careers starting when that big series or that big movie comes up, but it, it started way before then for you. And I was amazed to read that, that a pivotal point uh, in your acting career was actually uh, kind of an offshoot from the, the JFK tragedy, the JFK assassination. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because I thought that w- that was fascinating. Well, I mean, I, I wasn't acting then. I mean, I was going to college and going to be an architect and kind of exploring my options. And uh, I was a pole vaulter and I wanted to qualify for track and I had to take certain electives and they only had one elective in the English area available and I didn't know what it was and uh, it was called oral interpretation which sounds a little sexual but it had nothing to do with sex <laughs> it uh, it had everything to do with stepping up in front of people and talking and reading things and uh, stuff you wrote stuff you brought in whatever it happened to be it had to do with expressing yourself in front of the room which was terrifying to me so uh, I basically was failing the class because I was very, very, very shy, inhibited, um, uh, and I have to be honest with you, I was very open and the class clown, and I was always putting on shows in my backyard and performing until fourth grade, and I was shamed by a teacher oh. for bringing $2 to Alavera Street on a class outing rather than one, and unfortunately, um, I really was just totally embarrassed and shamed in front of the class. And it's funny, I went from this outgoing kid to this very self-conscious, very insecure, very terrified kid. I don't think that teacher had any idea how how she decimated me. And uh, But uh, it led me on a journey of kind of self-discovery of reading every book and taking every, studying every philosophy, religion, trying to find a way out of this very... Uh, deep abyss I was in and ultimately um, somebody recommended I go to a acting class which I was totally against I had always thought actors and the acting process and love theater and you know I had all my my uh, passions about the magic of movies and I just was totally enamored with all of that but never saw myself participating but here I was being told to go to this acting class by a very well respected friend of mine and I didn't want to go, but because he said, I think this will really help you. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll try it. And I was a surfer still going to school at that time. And I went to this class up in Hollywood and I'll never forget it. It was this very profoundly deep method class, uh, Stanislavski, but a very, very, uh, accelerated, evolved, um, um, aspect of, of the method. And, mm-hmm. It was a, a, as much a method for life as it was a method for acting. It was um, 
a very, very profound process. The exercises, everything we did in that class, uh, I realized just watching these actors perform, I realized I needed this, even though I was scared, you know, and terrified. I started coming to class, and uh, because I wasn't interested, I never thought of myself, I'm going to be an actor. I just thought, wow, I love this process. It really, really drew me, and I ultimately started going through all these exercises, and I could barely talk, and I could barely make sense with anything I said. People thought I had a voice impediment, and after about a year in that class, and I'm sure people felt the same way they felt in that uh, that oral interpretation class where I had this this powerful epiphany because I I was always the guy who got up and nobody could understand me and I didn't make any eye contact and everybody was kind of checking their watches and what what am I going to do next and uh, as I had said before I was failing the class until um, the the um, assassination of President Kennedy and they wrote an article in uh, the sports page and. It was a very powerful, emotional article, and they asked us to bring one in for class to read. And I happened to get be very touched and moved by this article on the sports page um, by a very well-known sports page columnist uh, writer. I brought it in, and um, you know, everybody kind of was kind of hoeing and humming. Here comes Richard Hatch again, and it was one of those kind of um, dead poet society moments <laughs> where. Uh, I started to read and slowly forgot myself because the material affected me so deeply. And all of a sudden, I started looking up. My voice started coming out. I made eye contact. People could understand me. And I gave one of those kind of powerful performances that uh, everybody in the room was absolutely stunned. And most of the people in the room were actors because that's, you know, they, they knew what they were doing when they got in that class. I had no clue. And uh, but afterwards, they were all, you know, shaking my hand and saying, "Why don't? Where did that come from?" And you should go <laughs> out. You should be an actor and come out, you know, for the plays. And I go, "Oh no, 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 no! That's not me. That's not me." But that kind of, you know, put a little seed in my head, and ultimately, it kind of paid off when this very good friend I had met um, recommended I go to this class. And that class, really, after about a year of stumbling through all my insecurities, I started really learning how to connect, how to deal with all the these suppressed emotions, all this deep sense of shame and embarrassment. And slowly, these exercises really helped me to move through all that stuff and start to be able to connect to material. It, See, it, my, yeah. yeah it's, it's always interested me how many times you'll hear, hear actors say they either are or were very shy people at their heart. Well, you know, deeply, I think deeply creative people, very intuitive people, very people with powerful imaginations tend to be sometimes people who, you know, grew up with a lot of abuse of one kind or another. Uh, they were cut off. They had trouble communicating. They they learned to use their imaginations and create their own little worlds and realities. And, you know, a lot of those, um, when you're very sensitive, vulnerable, deep feeling, which is kind of a the foundation of of deep you know art a very profound art artist has to have that deep sense of vulnerability and deep intuitive ability and i think they feel things more powerfully than most people they they get wounded deeper they they get traumatized deeper and a lot of them are traumatized and then they find that art is a healing modality they find that 
whether it's painting, drawing, singing, uh, dance, movement, it's a way to move through all of those, uh, those you know, impediments, those, those walls and blocks. Um, you know, society is not very comfortable expressing its emotions. We're, we're not encouraged to feel what we feel and to express what we feel. We're encouraged to hide what we feel, uh, hold it in, don't let it show. Um, and people have all kinds of judgments about vulnerability being weak. So there's all kinds of crazy stuff out there that gets in the way of the creative process. It gets in the way of the life process, which is why we have an epidemic of depressed people in this world. But I got to tell you, you know, they get drawn to the arts uh, first and foremost, probably because they're, they're just, you know, they, they feel something. They feel a kinship uh, with the arts. And then as they start to get into it, they find that it's, it's really soothing to their soul. It's, it's healing. It helps them to express a lot of deep feelings that they can't get out or nobody wants to listen to. So the, art, uh, the artist way becomes a pathway to kind of coming out of that depressed, repressed state. You come into this place where you start to let who you are out. You start coming back online, uh, feeling more grounded, more in touch with who you are. And then, you know, some people realize that this is something that they can actually turn into a paying art, that literally they have the the uh, passion and the skill sets to take it to that next level and actually start, whether it's painting or drawing or you know, choreography or directing or whatever it happens to be, they start to go down that road. But it starts, I think, a lot for people um, with just, it's a healing process. In, in terms of your process and, and taking it professional, uh, if I understand correctly, one of your first major roles was uh, in the soaps, All My Children. Uh, how did you get into that experience and, and what was that like? Well, all I can say is I was an actor and going to class, surfing, living down in Hermosa Beach, going up to class. And then I started going out for like uh, community theater and plays. Mm-hmm. And I went over to the um, Pasadena Playhouse and I went over to a bunch of different things and auditioned. And I got some roles on stage, which was my first acting experience ever. And then ultimately I got into a theater group that was doing one-act plays and poetry readings and Shakespeare and they ultimately had this this desire to go to New York. And, um, you know, I had nothing holding me back. And so I ultimately went to New York with them. And we all found this empty ballet studio. We all had no money. We lived in sleeping bags on the floor. And we performed, um, like I said, we, we did little one-act plays and poetry readings and Shakespeare playing and charged a few bucks for an audience to come in and so we were like an acting commune, and we that was my beginning in, in New York City um, back in the, uh, the uh, early 70s. And uh, all of a sudden, some agent saw me on doing some a monologue and wanted to handle me, and all this was very new to me, but I said yes, and they sent me out for auditions, and I auditioned for all my children about 3,000 times. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I kept, they kept bringing me back and I was very surprised and had me read with everybody. And then ultimately they tested me and uh, over at the ABC studios there in New York City around 67th and Broadway, uh, Columbus, I believe. Um, and uh, I, they gave it to me. I got it and I was shocked. It was like, oh my God. I thought I was going to be in New York for a few months and go back to L.A., 
you know, because uh, New York was this whole strange new city, tremendous vitality and energy and creativity, but it also, you know, you, you can't escape the harshness of life. There's all kinds of things kind of uh, blended in with everything else there. You, you kind of uh, have to deal with the, the highs and the lows and the ins and the outs of life in New York City. And it, but it was a great training ground. And I ultimately signed a contract for two years. They wanted it for three. And I ended up living there for almost two and a half years doing all my children, which changed my life. It was the best experience of my life. I love the cast. Uh, Erica Kane, Susan Lucci, yeah. played, you know, was on the 17 years old, and we were in our early 20s, but we were all playing teenagers, and it ultimately grew in this phenomenon. And ultimately, I was doing a rock musical at night, which I auditioned for and got down in the village, and I was going down there for eight performances a week, and I was on the soap during the day, and I was doing commercials, and I was. You know, I was really, I was taking voice classes and dance classes and acting classes, and it was the most amazing time, one of the most amazing times of my life. And um, you stole the words out of my mouth because I was going to think, uh, you know, a lot of times maybe soaps get a bad, uh, a bad rap, but I would think that would be a tremendous training ground for somebody how, learning to act for television, just technically. It would seem to me you you have to do so much. It's in a condensed period of time. It would just seem like you're kind of like thrown out there and you have to sink or swim. Well, we were live live tape. That means that there was no, uh, it wasn't filmed like it is today with one camera and then they take multiple takes and they edit it all together. This was four camera and they would choreograph it and you would have a run through and a dress rehearsal and you filmed it like a play. And you filmed it from beginning to end. There was no breaks in between. If there was a two-minute commercial break, you had two minutes to run to the next set, jump into your clothes, and be ready for the next scene. And there was no second take. It was one take all the way through. And most of the actors on Soaps back then were theater actors. So there were very good actors. And it was one of the few professions or one areas of, of show business where actors could really have a life. I mean, because actors would stay on these soaps for 10, 20 years, uh, 30 years. I mean, Erica Kane was on there for 35 years, maybe longer, and have a real life, and it paid you well, and you had a certain level of fame, but you also had, it was very grounded. You could have a real life because you would come to the studio each day like an eight-to-five job, and you'd work and do your stuff and, and prepare for the next day and come back in at 7 the next day. And most people would work three to four times a week, some people two to three times a week. So, you know, you would have long weekends and two or three days, sometimes four days. And you were making very good money and learning, honestly, working with some of the best actors I know. I was going down to the village. I was uh, auditioning for plays. I was, I mean, Meg Ryan. Uh, um, there's so many wonderful actors who came up through soaps. Um, so soap was a great training ground. Um, and again, you had to work with a lot of, lot of verbiage, a lot of material. And so you had to really learn how to make that work. And some of it's, ex a lot of it's exposition. Uh, soaps got a lot more provocative and edgy later and became more like nighttime television. But back then, you know, soaps were still kind of, I mean, they, they weren't as provocative or edgy, but you did have to deal with a lot of really dramatic situations. And, and then you'd have to learn how to make a lot of exposition, just fill in work, uh, make it make sense, make it, make it real. 
And so it really challenged you in a lot of ways. And like I said, you know, some of the best actors I know. Later on, they started to, you know, you get this this judgment about soap actors, you know, a certain look, a certain thing. And that's true. It kind of became more like that later. And I don't know if very many soap actors later kind of made it to television or movies. But back then, a lot of them did because most of them were serious, dramatic actors that were doing a lot of stage. Uh, and ultimately, like I said, it they moved on to the uh, television, nighttime television, and then on to uh, many of them on to movies. We're definitely going to get to Battlestar Galactica in a minute here because people are out there saying, I want to talk about Battlestar Galactica and see what Richard has to say, but I can't. Talk to you without talking about the streets of San Francisco and the experience uh, of working with Carl Malden. Well, um, I didn't audition for that show. I, I did um, a bunch of guest stars on Canon and other shows that, that Quinn Martin produced, and he noticed me. And ultimately, when um, I think Barnaby Jones, when his partner was leaving, he asked me if I would do that. And I, I said, no, I turned down a lot of things. I was a very idealistic actor. I, I, it wasn't even about stardom. I was never thought about stardom. I was really just a very idealistic actor that wanted something good to do, something meaningful. And I didn't see his sidekick getting much to do. And then, of course, um, Carl, I mean, uh, Michael Douglas was leaving the streets in the fifth year because of um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which he got, which he took from his, hang on a second. Which he took from his um, took from his uh, father and produced, and as we all know, became very successful. And uh, he uh, he was leaving the show because he had so much success happening from that. I think he wanted to move on to Hollywood and, mo- and movies and doing all kinds of stuff. And and his producing actually led to his career breakthrough. To tell you the truth, uh, he was a very very smart businessman and a, and a very charismatic actor to watch. Uh, but when he left, I was very, you know, I was, it wasn't a particular show that I watched, but when I was told that I was being offered the role, I couldn't believe it. And I went to meet Carl Malden and uh, we had lunch. And like I said, I never read for it, but I really was debating whether to do it because from what I noticed, most of the shows were guest star shows. The guest stars had more to do than the starring actors. Um, and, you know, Michael didn't have all that much to do except for maybe a particular show here and there. He'd have a little more to do. And again, my thought was I wanted something meatier. I wanted, again, my idealistic part of myself wanted something to grab onto and and uh, that would challenge me as an actor. But I finally uh, was talked into it by my agent and everybody else to say yes. I did and I came on the show and it was probably one of the most challenging years of my life because trying to live up to all the expectation of a successful show replacing Michael Douglas was really intimidating and threatening for me and Carl was very professional but not particularly friendly Mm -hmm. or supportive Um, he really loved Michael and I think it was very hard for him to uh, lose Michael on the show and to open up to to bonding with another actor he just was not like I said he was very kind of distant um, and that made it even harder for me. So again, by the end of the season, um, you know, I finally kind of made a breakthrough for me, um, on the fourth show, which was actually going to be the two hour pilot. Um, Michael Douglas was going to be on that show where he kind of basically gets shot and he leaves the police department. 
And he took me to lunch. And Michael was incredibly cordial, very congenial, very cordial, and very supportive. And just having that lunch with him and conversation with him was very helpful for me. And after that, I kind of found my my rhythm and my pace. But I never really felt part of the show because it's very hard to move into a show that's already established its chemistry, the relationship, and you know it's very hard to to replace that chemistry that was so effective between the two of them. So, you know, maybe had it gone on a second year, uh, it might have evolved into that. I don't know. It takes time to kind of for a character to come in and replace a major character. So, but it was not an easy year. And, uh, and in a weird way, I was kind of glad when it was over and I could move on. But then move on. You did Battlestar yeah. Galactica. So how did this start, you know, a defining role, a, a role that, uh, you know, you're going to be known for the, uh, for the rest of your life. How did, how did that happen? Um, again, I, when I came off that, I did some movies of the week. Um, I did a movie, um, which was, um, I think, uh, God, I'm trying to remember the movie now. Um, it was kind of an anthology series, Class of 65. That's right. That's what it was called. Rosanna Arquette was 18 years old. It was her first role, I believe. <laughs> um, and uh, Mark Harmon. It was between me and Mark Harmon. Um, and um, I got that role. They gave it to me. And uh, I basically played the role of a park coach. Um, and he's trying to help all these kids at this park. And all I remember was it was a two hour project. And again, it, it was very challenging for me. A lot of times, first days, second days are very challenging, but, um, I, uh, I, I really enjoyed the role and it, I connected to the role. And I think, uh, when they brought up Battlestar, every actor in town wanted to go into Reed Ford. Everybody was trying to get that role. It was going to be the biggest, most expensive production in TV history. And, um, I, even though I'm a big sci-fi guy, read tons of sci-fi, huge Star Trek fan, watched it growing up. I didn't want to go. Um, I just thought it was going to be, I thought it was gonna be a cheesy ripoff of Star Wars, which I loved. I'll never forget watching Star Wars over at the Grauman Chinese the first time. Blew me away. But I just thought, you know, TV tends to rip off successful movies. And sometimes they, they don't make much of a, uh, you know, a uh, TV series around that successful movie. It tends to sometimes just be gratuitous and cliche. But uh, I'm talking back then. I mean, things have changed today. But nevertheless, I turned down the audition and uh, went on with my life. And nine months later... Um, they came back to me and offered me the role. Um, I never read for it, never tested for it. They'd gone through everybody in Hollywood. And for whatever reasons, they couldn't negotiate a deal. They couldn't work out. So they couldn't get it together. And a couple of days before they started shooting, they didn't have Captain Apollo. Back in that day, his name was... Um, um, oh, God, what was my name before they changed it to Apollo? Um, crap, what was Skyler? My name was actually Skyler in the script. Um, and, uh, so they're here, they're offering it to me. And honestly, uh, being the idealistic actor again, which by the way, has got me into trouble. I've turned, <laughs> I've turned down too many things for all the wrong reasons. And, and people always assumed it was ego. I thought it was too good for the project. And I kind of, I think pissed off a few people. Um, but I never turned it down for that reason. I turned it down because I was always looking for something meaningful, something more fulfilling to do. 
that would allow me to to really do something as an actor. Um, and so anyway, they they finally my agent said, you know, do you want to do this? And I go, I I don't know. He says, well, let me negotiate. See if are you willing to negotiate for the moon? And I said, listen, if it's meant to be mine, then fine. And I was really I had a lunch dinner with uh, Glenn Larson. He actually picked me up in his limousine. And by the way. I don't have any money. I'm living in a hovel. I'm in Beverly Glen. I barely have any money. And here I am turning down a project like this. So, you know, hit me. I, I have no clue <laughs> where my head was. But nevertheless, he takes me out to dinner and wines and dines me. And here he is trying to talk this basically, you know, no name actor, although I'd come off streets with a little bit of uh, clout, a little bit of um, being known, and also from all my children. But Nevertheless, I was no big actor at the time, and here he is trying to talk me into doing this project. And I honestly, I just, it, I, I thought this is just going to be running around shooting people and, you know, a bunch of action and no real substance, no character development. And I just thought, I don't, I want something meaningful. I really want to do something meaningful. But again, I didn't see the larger picture. And uh, I was ready to turn it down. But again, my agent, oh, I know what it was. Um, he gave me this whole pitch on how this was going to be pattern after family, which was a huge successful drama at the time and, and wagon train. These two things, one is the action adventure. The other was the character family, James Broderick. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, and I, I was just humming and hawing and finally he shows me the script and I see all this Ralph McQuarrie art. And believe it or not, the little kid in me couldn't believe this, all this art. This art just took the little boy in me, and I saw myself zooming through the universe. And it was the script that actually turned, not the script story, it was the animation, the artwork in the script that made me say yes. And then, of course, after I said yes, I was not sure I wanted to do it. I was like, oh, shit, what have I done? <laughs> and, 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 then, and then, of course, I read the script, and I thought the script was, was pretty good. But I still was conflicted. But my agent negotiated it, and they spent two days negotiating, and it was getting down to the wire. And I thought, well, this is not going to work. you know. And ultimately, he calls me up because you won't believe it. You got it. You got everything we asked for, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, you're kidding and he says, yeah, and not only that, you not only got it, but you got to get in the car right now and drive over to the studio. You're going to be working in two hours. <laughs> I go, what? And then I was a, it was a mad, mad dash trying to learn the script, learn the scene, running over to Universal and running onto this mega set. I'd never seen a set this big. Um, and I never saw anything like it in terms of film crews from all over the world on a set, filming everybody, interviewing everybody. I'd never seen a show have that kind of attention. And we hadn't even gone anywhere yet. Um, and uh, it was very intimidating that first day. I was the number one. I, my name was in first position. I had the biggest motorhome. And I'm sitting there, and, and it's Lauren Green. I didn't know Lauren Green was on the show, and then I felt embarrassed. <laughs> it was like, oh, my God, I grew up with Bonanza, ben and Craig, I, have, right? I have a bigger mo motorhome, and my name is – I'm number one in the credits and, and the card. And it was like I felt embarrassed, and I apologized to him. I said, I, I said I, you should have first credit. You, you're way bigger than me. And I was – so impressed by how gracious and humble and down to earth he was. And to tell you the truth, it was his really 
quality of human being, quality of who he was that settled me down and grounded me and helped me get through that first day. And, and then I realized I was, I was not working with, you know, somebody that I didn't really know or have a connection to. I was working with somebody that I instantly had a bond with. I felt totally connected to him and he's playing my father. And I was very happy that I felt for the first time I was actually going to be with some actors that I really love being with. And I was going to, you know, and I had a natural chemistry with. So that was a, you know, it was a pretty life-changing adventure. I I hope we're okay on time because I've got a lot, (laughs) quite a few more questions. Uh, In terms of that, you know, the the outside observer, and you kind of said it before, might just consider Battlestar Galactica. Well, that was ABC's gambit to capitalize on the Star Wars thing, which I'm sure it was partially. But what made it more than just that? Well, I mean, Battlestar was a totally different story than Star Wars. But you have to understand that studios and networks were not very hot on sci-fi. In fact, they've never been, Um, even though sci-fi... And fantasy has turned into be one of the most successful genres I know. They tend to still be very uncomfortable with really visionary, intelligent sci-fi. Um, and um, all I can tell you is is that they really weren't all that excited about the show. You know, putting the show on, and so um, they even they only had a seven uh, episode pickup. Um, at the beginning, and ABC really was not all that. I think they just wanted to capitalize on Star Wars, but the truth was is that the Battlestar story was a great story. It was really a great story, and it was really about, you know, what what if there are brothers of men living out there in the universe, civilizations that are kindred spirits, that are brothers of mankind, and I love the whole mythology, Mayan, Aztec uh, mythology that was woven into it. And so, you know, again... Um, it was also a time when Star Wars, they, they got really kind of critical of, of Battlestar and tried to close us down, lawsuits because of the lasers, as if somehow somebody owns the, the right... <laughs> Concept of a laser. What about, a laser. Flash, what about Flash Gordon? <laughs> yeah, I, I know. And then, and then they had to obviously somehow settle, and they did. Um, um, 20th lost the lawsuit, uh, but still... They changed the lasers so that you never saw the beam. You just saw the light at the, on the gun, and then you saw the explosion from a distance, but you never saw the actual laser, um, which was just silly. But nevertheless, um, it was a great story, but uh, ABC never fully embraced this story, and everybody was trying to throw their best shows at it and take it down. And because it was ABC that was a little arrogant because they had seven out of the top ten shows, and we were in the top 10. We opened to 65 million people. It was probably the biggest sci-fi opening ever on television in history. Um, and then we hovered in the top 10 for several shows. And then by mid-season, they, they just they had never really had the time uh, to develop a story arc for the show. And they hadn't gone beyond seven episodes because that's really what it was going to be as a miniseries. That's what we started out as. And then it got picked up as a full series about three or four episodes in into the first three or four hours of programming. So there wasn't time to really develop everything. So we kind of got caught with a lot of, I think, very weak shows. And I think we lost a lot of our audience from that. But we still were in the top 20. And we were still about 20 percentage points ahead of Buck Rogers, which actually ended up 
being on the air for three years in a row because it was on another network. But being on ABC, they couldn't justify the expense with a show that uh, dropped out of the top ten. Any other network, we would have been on for the next ten years. ABC was not willing to, and they didn't see the larger picture. They didn't see all the merchandising. Yeah, the movies that. <laughs> I mean, I even, I even, I mean, I'm of that age that was your target market, and I remember seeing the lunch boxes, and it was a big deal for a while there, and then it just went away. Yep, it was because they just didn't know what to do. They had no, they had no idea. Plus, ABC was already pulling uh, back funding for Battlestar even on day one. All the departments were getting less and less money. The CGI that was all new. What they were doing, you know, John Dykstra, who did all the stuff for Star Wars, you know, moved on to other shows, and they really didn't support the show in a lot of different ways. And and like I said, that show had it really had half a chance. I think could have been on for the next ten years, and and truly, truly been groundbreaking. Even though, you know, that show still had a major impact. And even 20, 30 years later, a one-year show, no show in history has had the impact of Battlestar Galactic and from one season. That's true. And I mean, I know they tried to kind of half-heartedly bring back a version in 1980, but I think that's pretty much been discredited no, by they, anybody. No, they, they, they really blew it there. And, and the trouble was ABC realized they made a mistake when they replaced uh, our show on Sunday night with Mork and Mindy. Mork and Mindy, which cost them a lot less money than Battlestar, had far less ratings. So they moved Mork and Mindy, and then they had that empty slot on Sunday night, and they realized, we made a mistake, we should bring back Battlestar, but how do we do this? We don't want to put off the money for it. So they cut the budget in half, brought the show to Earth. I didn't want to do it. It was no longer the Battlestar I, I cared about. So uh, And the show, for me, other than the Dirk Benedict episode, guesting episode that he had, for me, was a piece of crap. So years go on, and uh, what was after Battlestar? I mean, I know we had the, the, the revival in the 2000s, and you've done some acting in that, but what, what did Richard Hatch say, okay, Battlestar's over, what was next for you? No, I, I went through a whole disillusionment. I didn't want to be in the industry anymore. I, I was burnt out. I felt I had been deceived, lied to by the powers that be every time I got on a show, the promises they made, they never followed through with. Um, I was angry at the business, and I turned down a lot of shows. And I don't even want to go into all the shows I turned down, but I turned down a lot of series, a lot of shows, a lot of stuff. Um, you know, and uh, in fact, a lot of stuff I turned down, um, um, what's his name, did, although he was considered the Pilot King, because he did more failed pilots bef until Magnum came. Uh, Selleck? Mag yes, Tom Selleck did a lot of the shows I turned down, and they all failed. But uh, if he finally got that uh, Magnum P.I., which became a hit hit from him, and uh, it took off his career. But he, he had more failed pilots than anybody. He was known for that uh, <laughs> back then. So, again, I, I just went away from kind of the industry, and I... I started teaching and doing Tony Robbins type stuff and every once in a while somebody would have a little movie part or something to do and if it was interesting I might do it but I really was just burnt out on the industry and it was not until around 95, no you're on 95 that my girlfriend at the time who was a big sci-fi geek started saying you should go to conventions. I didn't even know what conventions were and she took me to Star Trek convention in the Pasadena, and I couldn't believe how many people uh, cheered when they mentioned Battlestar, and 
it, it kind of opened my eyes that there was a huge fan base out there. And then I got invited to a lot of conventions around the country. And I started realizing there was a lot of people that loved Battlestar. And I thought, why don't they bring Battlestar back, you know, and do it right this time? And, um, and I started meeting with the powers that be. I wrote three stories, a trilogy of stories. I started going to Universal to pitch it. I'd never done that in my life, but I felt very strong about it. Um, and they just couldn't get it. They couldn't see it. They, most of them didn't even know they owned Battlestar. <laughs> <laughs> and um, ultimately, it just became, a, for me, uh, a challenge. And I, I wanted to show them something more powerful. And I put together probably one of the first movie presentations, a pilot presentation, because nobody did um, pilot presentations back then. No, The only time you did a movie trailer was when you had a movie. It was going to be in the movie theater. You didn't use it to pitch a series. And I literally started out with an animated storyboard that grew into the Second Coming trailer back in 1999, 2000. And I started playing it around the country, and everybody got excited. Got all these major reviews. And Harvey Weinstein and Miramax called me wanting to make a movie deal. And I didn't even own the rights, and Universal didn't even know it was out there. And I wasn't making money on it. I I made it as a presentation. Ultimately, I played it for Universal. They were blown away. They couldn't believe it was that good. And I had done it for a, a smidgen of the money it would cost uh, most studios to put together a trailer. Anyway, ultimately, uh, the studio didn't want to move forward. And I reluctantly had made some deals over at uh, Sci-Fi Channel, which was starting to play the old Battlestar series. And all these licensees wanted to do products based on the old Battlestar. And I got put with all these companies because they knew I was very involved in it all. So I did comic books and toys and games, and, and then I got a book series that I got to write and develop, and I did seven Battlestar books, novels, and all that led to producing the 25th Battlestar Anniversary Convention and then pitching, like I said, this trailer. And ultimately, um, when Universal didn't want to go forward, uh, the ball was picked up by uh, um, Tom DeSanto and Brian Singer, who basically had just done X-Men and had such a success. And they came to Universal because Universal wanted to make a deal with them. And they said, what do you want to do, guys? Let's make movies. And he said, we want to do Battlestar. And they couldn't believe it. Battlestar, <laughs> what the hell is this Battlestar? And they said, yeah, Battlestar is the next big franchise. And so they made a deal, and that started the whole ball rolling again. And they made a deal with Fox, and then... They were going to do a full season and they were going to use me and Dirk and Herb and several of the original actors along with a new generation of actors, which was very much like my books, only it was a different story. I mean, it was obviously a different script uh, than my books were. Um, but my books picked up with Battlestar 25 years later with a whole new generation of our kids born in space. And that was kind of my my where I was taking it, building a bridge to the past in order to build a bridge to the future. And again, they came up with a story where the story would take place 25, 30 years in the future, which was great because we were going to bridge new territory, dramatic territory, go places the show hadn't gone yet. And uh, But Fox dropped the deal suddenly, and uh, Tom, who loves the original Battlestar, Tom DeSanto took it over to Sci-Fi Channel, and they just not were not really supportive of sci-fi i mean anybody that knows sci-fi channel has only recently started to do more and more quality sci-fi but back then they really didn't like they rather do horror um you know 
They got into all kinds of other programming. So they weren't all that interested, but they did think that maybe if they reimagined it for, for a new audience, they might be open to that. And I guess Ron Moore came in and pitched them a concept, an idea, and they put that together and went and developed it. And I met Ron Moore at the 25th anniversary that I, uh, Battlestar anniversary, and we connected and um, he um, invited me Several months later, when the show got picked up, which was, by the way, not not a certainty, um, Sci-Fi Channel wasn't picking it up. It, they did the four-hour pilot, and then it played in Europe first because they put in the lion's share mm-hmm. of the money. It played on Sky Channel there, but it did so well that all of a sudden Sci-Fi Channel decided to pick it up. He called me in and said, I have a guest star role for you that could turn into an ongoing role. And it, that was Tom Zarek, and that changed my life again. It brought me back into the acting world. And I got to work with some of the best actors, the best writers, best directors I've ever worked with in my life. And um, it was the most optimum acting circumstance I've ever been in. Uh, wow. It was extraordinary. It, it really rekindled my passion for acting. Because, again, acting to me it was always a, a, such a powerful art, a way of you know, moving beyond what people think are, is possible, delving in to the complexities of life and, and who we are as human beings. And for me, acting was such a powerful process. And I, the way I teach it is the same thing. And the way I learned it was the same thing. It's, it's a process for life as it is a process for acting. And, uh, but a lot of that got lost in my career where it just all seemed to be, I don't know, all for the wrong reasons or all commercialized. And look, I understand people have to make money and sure. things have to, but I just thought a lot of heart a lot of, I mean, today, I have to tell you, the quality of act of writing today on television is phenomenal. I mean, television. It's cable, better than the movies many times. Cable has better programming than the movies do. Movies, for me, rarely have a great movie. But television has some of the greatest television series, epic television series of all time with the best actors, writers, directors. So it's a different world today. But back then, things tended to be more black and white. And, it, uh, it, it strikes me that, and I think about somebody like Shatner who wrote Star Trek books, that these programs um, and Battlestar for you have had a real impact on your life. It, it seems to me that you're probably a very different person in many ways because of Battlestar. And the fact that you wrote so many books, uh, so many novels on Battlestar, that almost somehow that story resonated with you on some kind of deep level that 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 really is formed who you are as a person. Well, I mean, it, it's an archetypal story. Archetypal story means a story configuration blueprint that everybody can connect to on a certain level. And they don't even understand why, but when they see a movie like that, that's archetypal, it, it moves them, it touches them psychologically on deep, deep levels that they may not even be aware of. And Battlestar is an archetypal story structure. It deals with leaving home wandering around the deserts of space and then seeking out a new homeland but having to be challenged every day life and death to make decisions and uh, and and whether you go on course off course finding out who you are as you face all these challenges and some days you're the hero and some days you're the coward and really like Moses and the Israelites which is the metaphor um you know we've come to a new recognition of who we are and those that survive are the ones who basically establish a new homeland. That's kind of the metaphor that we live, all live out in life. We grow up, we have a family, we uh, we have that support 
and then ultimately we're cast out into the world. We leave either by our own volition or our parents kick us out. Um, and then we're struggling out there trying to find ourselves, find out who we are, what we are, make thousands of mistakes. And then ultimately, as we begin to find what we want to do and establish a foundation for it, we start to build a new family, find a new world, a new place, a new thing. So it's an archetypal story structure, only on a more expanded level. You've been very generous with your time, but I want to tell folks, what are you excited about today? What are you doing today that that makes you happy to get up in the morning? And where can people connect to all of these things that you're currently excited about? Well, I'm doing a bunch of things. I mean, I'm very, very um, tapped into a lot of different projects. Um, you can go over to battlestargalactica.com. You can go to richardhatch.com. And I teach and lecture. I do one-on-one coaching, um, life coaching and acting coaching. Um, I'm also involved in several big projects. I've done three pilots. One is Cowboys and Engines, which is a steampunk with Malcolm McDowell, cool. <laughs> uh, which is being pitched to uh, studios. And networks. I did another one called After the Harvest, which is a post-apocalyptic Mad Max-style series that Vernon Wells, who was in the original uh, movie, uh, is one of the actors starring and and also producers. Um, and then I just, like I said, I just did a um, a pilot, not a pilot, but I just did this incredible Star Trek indie film on a level that nobody has ever seen. It's not a series like these next, you know, uh, these Star Trek. Indie, I mean, fan series you've seen uh, that have certainly grown and gotten better and better and better. Uh, and really, the quality of those shows are, is astounding when uh, they're actually being done by just regular people. Um, and they've been bringing more and more guest actors into those shows. But this is an actual movie, and it goes into the Battle of Exonar, which has never been explored, which is when Kirk was in Starfleet Academy, and he looked up to Garth of Izar, the starship captain that most inspired him. And Garth was known for the big Battle of Exonar. And this movie is all about Exonar. And it's called Exonar, A-X-A-N-A-R. You can go over to on YouTube and check out the prelude to Exonar, which is a documentary-style intro with a lot of powerful effects. And you'll get to see this amazing group of actors, um, J.G. Hersler who played one of the premier Klingons in the Star Trek universe, uh, Gary Graham, uh, Tony Todd, myself, Kate Vernon from the, from the new Battlestar that I was part of. Uh, it's an amazing cast. And uh, they've just rented sound stages for three years. They're going to start filming the movie in June. Um, and uh, they've raised over a million dollars for this thing. They're doing another Kickstarter. And uh, it's going to be an epic. I don't know. It's going to be groundbreaking in terms of seeing how a uh, um, a Star Trek fan kind of um, configuration has evolved into a very sophisticated, very high-tech, very st- almost uh, on the level of studios uh, from an independent point of view Star Trek movie. So it would be interesting to see how Paramount deals with that. And then I'm developing my – I've been working on a project for 10 years since Battlestar – the Battlestar I developed couldn't move forward – um, wasn't able to move forward. It's called Guam, Great War Magellan. Deals, it's an epic story of a man that's been alive for thousands of years. Uh, he's an ancient star mariner who has been on Earth for 800 years, written a popular series of sci-fi books uh, that turn out to be true. And uh, it's 2040, 
and the first manned mission to the moon of Titan discovers a crashed spaceship, an hologram, and thus begins this journey, a story within a story uh, of this man's adventure as a child growing up in the Magellanic Cloud, his whole epic evolution and the evolution of that very human uh, civilization that in a sense mirrors this one, but far more progressed, far more um, uh, advanced. And uh, you get a chance to have a glimpse into our possible future, but it's a, a very powerful story within a story. And I, I'm doing a, the first novel will be coming out. Uh, I have an RPG. Uh, I'm going to be doing a graphic novel with it, and I'm going to shoot a high-end web series. Web series are becoming a place where you can actually put together your own pilot presentation. You can film several episodes. You can test the marketplace, and then you can pitch it to networks, cable stations, or, as I think will happen very soon, you won't even have to do that. You'll monetize it. You'll build a relationship to the audience, and uh, you will leave it where it is, and you can have an epic television series serving a niche market that I think is underserved. I mean, all the real great sci-fi shows have been taken off the air. Uh, Babylon 5, Farscape, Battlestar, Star Trek, none of those series are on the air anymore. So for me... You know, Firefly, I mean, you can go down the list. So uh, I'm a huge, huge uh, fan of all those shows. So again, I'm, uh, I'm developing this as a producer. I'm going to do a high-end uh, web series to launch the novel, and then we'll see where it goes from there. So, And then I'm doing, a, by the way, a, a sci-fi Comic-Con at sea starting in uh, uh, June. We're starting from Barcelona and going to many ports in the Mediterranean. And a lot of uh, uh, actors and very big shows are also guests on that show. Um, um, I, I think if you go to uh, Sci-Fi at Sea uh, or Comic-Con at Sea, it'll tap you into the website and to all the information about that. So, again, um, there's just lots of really, really cool things happening. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm very excited to be part of so many wonderful projects, including the one I'm, I've put my heart and soul in. To over the last ten years, and and like I'm a, I do have to say I'm a, I'm directing, I'm going to be directing this movie Dead by Friday. I'm not Dead by Friday uh, with honors, which is a about a Vietnam vet that's been on the street for thirty years, and he was a, a Medal of Honor winner who walked away from the war in Vietnam. He was an ex SEAL and and uh, written by an ex SEAL, uh, Navy SEAL, and uh, it's a powerful, powerful story and script and. Like I said, I'm involved in all these various projects. So it's a very exciting time to be alive and to be still invo very involved in this industry. Well, you may know him as Captain Apollo, but obviously Richard Hatch is much, much more. Richard, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. You're very welcome. Have, have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. And thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you next time on TV You Grew Up With. Thanks so much.